Welcome back to another episode of Millennial Manhood. Today I've got Dr. Benjamin Hardy with me. He is the author of the upcoming book, Personality Isn't Permanent, which I think is one of the coolest titles I've heard in a long, long time. So Dr. Ben, for folks who don't know who you are, give everybody a a 10,000 foot view of yourself, your background and and some of the work you've been doing. Thanks, dude. Glad you like the title, by the way. Uh, Yeah, my wife and I live in Florida. We've got five kids. Uh, I got my PhD in organizational psychology while we were in Clemson, South Carolina, where I did that. We, uh, we fostered three kids wow. and actually adopted them. So it was kind of a crazy, we, we got them when I was in my first year of the PhD program. We spent three years battling the foster system in court, adopted them. And a month after the adoption, my wife got pregnant with twins. So wow, kind of a big year in 2018, we adopted three kids and had twins, um, that was kind of the, that was also the same year that I launched this book, which is called Willpower Doesn't Work. Um, so yeah, that was a big year, big crazy year. We decided to kind of recover through 2019. 2019 was a recovery year, <laughs> right. and uh, now we're just kind of enjoying enjoying life, man. And uh, I write. You know, I had a lot of success on Medium.com for a long period of time. I was kind of the top writer there for a big stretch of time. Learned learned how to blog and share ideas, and now I'm just enjoying family life, enjoying having conversations like you and. Uh, continuing to learn about psychology in different ways and hopefully disrupting uh, limiting perspectives that are pervasive. So there's a couple of interesting things you said there that I want to unpack. One, the idea of um, fostering, then adopting, then getting pregnant with two. Man, talk about, later, yeah. Yeah, talk about life just kicking you in the face immediately on that front. And you, and you said 2019 was a recovery year. And now, well, we all know 2020 ain't really in a, a recovery year. 2020 is all kinds of craziness year. But like from a psychological standpoint, as a professional in that world, how does that feel just getting hit with all that at once? Yeah, uh, there's a quote from William Durant. He's a, he's, a, um, he's a historian. He's dead now. But he said that the ability of the average person could be doubled if the situation demanded it. Mm. <laughs> um, that's kind of what happened, man. I mean, I... Uh, we, ha- we got into the situation. My wife was the one ultimately who wanted to do the foster care thing. She grew up mm-hmm. with foster girls in her home. And so, I mean, I was on board, you know, when you're in a relationship like this, you have a shared vision, so you support each other. So I did it. Theoretically, I wanted to do it um, when, when the actual experience occurred and we got the three kids. And obviously, they had a lot of behavioral challenges and issues. I had to obviously go through the adjustment process of learning how to want it, invest in the kids. And so, I mean, it took a, at least a year or more. Yeah. And um but uh, yeah, it was a bunch of kicks in the face, man. But that's kind of, you know, one quick example is like my two twins, like now they're like 17 months old. And before COVID happened, we were having them go through swimming lessons because here mm-hmm. in Florida, swimming pools are common and we have our own pool. And so like, you don't like you, you these little 17 year old, 17 month old babies can learn how to swim, but obviously it's not fun for them to get thrown in the pool and have to figure out how to do it, crying, kicking, screaming, but they then learn how to do it. And so that's, I think that that's kind of how it was. You know, I I mean, I wasn't quite crying, kicking and screaming, but it was that hard for me. And I think that one of the reasons people stop adapting and changing is because they stop putting themselves through such rigorous experiences. And so to me, even though it's nuts, it's kind of what we seek and try for because we kind of want growth and opportunity. I love that. I love that. And, you know, within the context of millennial manhood, particularly for sure, this podcast you know, the vision from day one has been to to help share stories, to help young men become better members of their communities and their families. Such an and, important subject, dude. And, and and what I love about it and what's been most satisfying about this all is the fact that it's allowed for both men and women to come on here and share their stories so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. 
and, and the power of having somebody say, Hey, challenging yourself and putting yourself in these, these circumstances that take you out of your comfort level that allow for you to strive for another level is so critical. Yeah. It's, it's more than possible. Like human beings are so adaptive. Um, I mean, that's something I've learned over and over. Like just, this may sound weird, but if we had found out my wife was pregnant with like four twins, you know, or four kids, like we would have adapted, like, you know, like, and, and people often say like, how, how did you get five kids in one year? Like, whether it was one or five, it would have felt just as hard because yeah. you adapt to your situation. And so I think that the challenge for people is that they don't realize how much they can change, how much they can rise up. Um, so instead they stay in situations that don't demand much of them. Yeah. So, so before we get into your new book, the willpower doesn't work. How did that come about? Just the book itself, like the concept. Yeah. Cause I've, I've heard that concept multiple times and one of the best quotes I've ever heard, um, was from a guy named John Wright, who does a lot of coaching for NFL players, financial mm-hmm. advisors, et cetera. Um, I was speaking to him. This is probably 2016. And we were talking about the, the concept of, uh, of discipline. People come to him all the time and say, I need more discipline. He said, that's bull crap. You don't need more discipline. You need better habits. You're very disciplined to your bad habits. You just need to create an environment that allows for your good habits to strive, to, to, to blossom. So um, anyway, willpower. willpower that is exactly work. that book. Um, yeah. although I, less about habits and more about the environment. Yeah. Um, yeah, this whole book is about how to shape your environment so that you can ultimately be who your future self wants you to be. Um, and I wrote the book cause I, I, uh, I grew up in a pretty toxic situation. My father was an extreme drug addict all through junior high and high school. I will note immediately that he's actually overcome all that. And we've both totally reframed the whole experience. He's like one of my heroes. And it's wow. actually important, an important idea with personality to realize that your past is actually a fiction. It's really a story you're telling. Um, mm. And you get to choose to vilify people or, you know, you know, I could choose to frame my father as a hero or a villain. Like, that's literally my choice. It's my framing. Um, but he actually is a hero to me because he's overcome a lot. But anyways, I came from a rough background. And obviously, that had a big impact on myself and my brother, my younger brother. He ended up falling into addiction himself. Actually, we recently took him to a, like a recovery unit, even just barely. He's been struggling with addictions for well over a decade because of all this multiple decades, potentially at this point. Um, and obviously from an addiction standpoint, willpower is the opposite way that you would want to go about trying to overcome an addiction, white knuckling and stuff like that. Like that doesn't work. What they, a better way of looking at is, is that the op, so there's a Ted talk actually called the everything you think you know about addiction is wrong. And it's actually really important. But Johan Hari, the, the guy who talks about it, and it fits with the science, he says that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Mm. Um, and, and the only way to connect is obviously to open up. You know, another kind of Alcoholics Anonymous concept is that you're as sick as your secrets. And so like, you know, like if you're holding things in, if you're suppressing things, um, then you're, 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 you're sick, you know? And so the idea is, is that the only way out is through other people, through help, through a supportive environment, through encouragement, through opening up about, you know, there's another good quote is the idea that, you know, all progress starts by telling the truth. And so you need to open up and admit, you know, like that's, I think when I, when I know someone's getting ready to move on from an addiction or even make a big change in their life, when they start owning the fact that they're ready to make a change, they're opening up about it. They're not egotistical about their current self. And they start saying, this is the person I want to be. I need help. I need support. Um, and so with willpower doesn't work, the, the final concept that really brought me home. And the reason I wrote it, because I saw my younger brother who has all the potential in the world, so limited by his environment. 
But when we took our three foster kids out of the foster system or, you know, took them out of their, their home, they came from the most terrible situation. You know, obviously they got put into the foster system for a reason, but their parents were high on drugs. Like they were, they didn't get taken to school. They were just sitting in front of the TV all day. And so it's like, you're very limited by your environment, by your context. You don't, your, your, your choices are limited by what's available to you. And so all of the willpower in the world could not have given these kids, you know, various opportunities. And so, you know, when they're put into a new context, all of a sudden they've got all sorts of options and resources and perspectives that would never be available to them otherwise. Same situation to us. If you give us three foster kids, we're freaking required to do all sorts of stuff we wouldn't have had to do otherwise. And so this book is far, like more of a social, like a psychological perspective of change where you focus on context first, rather than focusing on the individual, you focus on the context that shapes the individual. And so that uh, that's willpower doesn't work and about how to design environments that take you to the place you want to go. That's so interesting because as you're talking, so we, um, we, um, we got a dog about two months ago and it's our first dog and I'm going through all the different, you know, teaching him how to sit, stay, walk on a leash, blah, blah, blah. He was a stray. So the first time I put on a a leash on him, I thought he was going to, you know, have a heart attack. But I was thinking about that the other day, like his success and anything that he wants to learn, which is it might seem simple to us, but it's so intense for them and their brains is solely dependent on how much energy my wife and I are willing to pour into him because we are responsible for his success, what we expose him to. Um, if, if I don't teach him how to control his impulses because he's a large dog um, in public, he could get put down. And that, that would be my fault. That would not be the dog's fault. The dog is following his instincts. Yep. Um, so in transitioning that into, into the human world, like you said about fostering or what I think is really powerful, what you said about, you know, our, our, our past is really just a fiction we're telling us and we get to choose how we like, well, how the characters are presented. Yeah. That that's, is, that's definitely far more in the personalities and permanent realm than the willpower realm. But uh, yeah, past is a meaning, you know, and, and you have to reframe the meaning of the past. You know, like if I still saw my past the same way I did it as an 11 year old kid, that'd be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, hopefully the 32 year old version of me sees those events from a different lens and has a different perspective and a different context. Um, and that's one of the challenges with trauma, obviously unresolved trauma is one of the things that shapes your personality. And so like you change it by reframing the meaning of it, you know, like I could choose Mm -hmm. to have the meaning be that my dad's a horrible person, or I can get to know my dad more and realize he's actually a freaking great guy who struggled and I can choose to have a better meaning. Um, and so, yeah, the past is totally a fiction. Uh, and it's, it's important to realize that, that even in 10 years from now, I'll look at my past from a different perspective because I'll totally have a different vantage point in 10 years from now. And so it allows you to not overvalue your current, prefer- your current perspective. My current perspective is a temporary thing. So I don't want to overly define myself, especially. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I'm pretty against type-based personality tests. One of the reasons is they're obviously non-scientific, but they really lead you to overly defining your present self, which is a stupid thing to do when you realize your future self is going to see things a lot differently. You're putting yourself in a box. Well, yeah, you're putting yourself in a box, which leads to defending the box and also confirming the box uh, and being mindless to everything that's not in the box. I mean, it, it leads to a lot of um, bad psychological outcomes, but more importantly, it leads you to not focusing on the future, which you would prefer to be different. You know, like there's a lot of research on future self as an example and about how you'd want to create a desired future self. Like 
overly defining the present stops you from making you know, a lot of big positive change in the future. It leads you to essentially being rigid about your view and thinking it's right and things like that. When it's not right, it's just a view. Your current view is even just as fictional <laughs> as <Yeah>. your past. <laughs> that's really interesting. So, so let's, let's move forward a little bit to the book that's coming out in June. So how, man, we've dug into it a little bit, but personality isn't permanent. So let's first of all, talk about the title. What, Tell me what, about it, man. <laughs> yeah, like what, what, I mean, what, what made you come up with that? Because this is actually a topic I've personally, and I am not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, sure, sure, sure. I'm an economist by trade. That's um, cool. But the concept of personality to me is so fascinating. And we do talk about it as if it's this static thing that never changes. And I mean, I can just speak from my own personal experience. That's not true. I'm a different person today than I was 10 years ago easily. Yes, yes. <laughs> it would be weird if you weren't actually. Yeah, it'd um, be concerning. <laughs> it would be incredibly concerning if you weren't. Yeah, it would be incredibly concerning if you were the same person as you were 10 years ago, whatever age you are, you know. And, um, and so, yeah, so that's, that's a key is that we as a society have frameworks for looking at people. Um, we like simplifying things. We think that personality is innate. It's easy to see patterns in people and to assume that because, because those patterns exist, their personality must be innate. Um, a lot of that's honestly our own blinders. Like, you know, it's easy to see a person, other person or ourselves from one perspective and not realize that actually we've changed a lot and we didn't realize it or they've changed a lot and we didn't realize it. A lot of it has more to do with perception than actually the fact that someone's the same. But research these days now shows personality is going to change over a person's lifetime and over even a shorter period of time. Um, and well, so once you then start to be intentional about it, you can change a lot. Well, let's take a step back. How would you describe personality or yeah, define it, personality? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different ways to define it, but I think the most simple way to define it is, is that it's your consistent way of showing up or responding to situations. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just your consistent attitudes and behaviors. Um, a lot of it has, it goes obviously a lot deeper than that though. Like I also look at personality as your comfort zone. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's how you like to do things. It's what's easy for you or it's what's not even easy, but it's what's comfortable for you. Anything that's outside your comfort zone is probably slightly outside how you would define your personality. There's mm -hmm. more uncertainty. It's less predictable. Uh, you probably avoid doing it. Um, but if you're seeking growth, obviously you have to start, you have to stop being consistent with the former version of yourself and start being consistent with your desired future. So uh, in order to actually make meaningful change, you actually have to, you have to go outside your predictable way of doing things. Uh, but that's kind of, that's, that's, and, and I will say it's different from identity. Identity is actually a far more important concept than personality. Identity is the thing that drives personality. Um, so identity is your self-concept. It's how you define and describe yourself. Identity is 10 times more important than personality. Personality is actually a byproduct. Um, and so that's why it's actually important to let go of your former identity, to not, not be so uh, upset, obsessed with your current identity. And it's really important to actually define your future identity. Um, because once you've defined your future self and made that the basis for how you describe yourself and how you move forward, then your personality starts to adjust itself to your goals rather than to your past. That's so interesting. So, so one of the books that I read earlier this year was Atomic Habits. Um, yeah. by James Clear. And one of the, the key concepts he talks about in the book is uh, inward focus goals and habits where he uses the example of people um, quitting to smoke. Yep. So the success rate between people who said I'm quitting smoking versus I'm not a smoker, the people who identified as just not being a smoker had a much 
higher success rate. A hundred percent. That's because behavior and identity come together. And that's why you would actually start with future identity. That's the first place you start. Um, and then obviously that becomes your new narrative because narrative is how you describe yourself and you want to describe yourself in a future focused way, not such a definitive way on your present. Um, and so, yeah, if you're wanting to not be a smoker, you wouldn't define yourself as a smoker. You actually wouldn't even want to define yourself as a former addict. I mean, maybe, maybe that would, because you're using the word former and you're just yeah. delineating yourself from your former self. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, that makes total sense. And I, I agree with like 75% of what James Clear says in that book. Yeah. It's a, it was a super interesting concept because I, I had heard that concept over and over. What I liked about his book was his packaging was very, the, the message was very concise and how he brought it to the He's forefront. He's a good writer. He's a good yeah. writer. Yeah. So I started following his, uh, his weekly newsletter after that and he, he knows how to get a, a message across. But, and I think that's so, that's so crucial because I think in a lot, in a lot of the conversations that I've had with guests on here, especially in the, in the age of social media and this, especially in the age of constant self-comparison, especially amongst younger folks. Um, you know, there is this constant uh, reel going on in the background of I'm not X or I'm not good enough for Y or whatever it may be. Yeah. And, and that is so detrimental to whatever you're the trying story. to accomplish. Yeah. But the it, story it, leads you to confirming the story. You want to try to, well, you ultimately prove, you try to defend the story. Um, and then you become very inflexible to anything outside of it. So like if you, if you don't think you're good at talking to people, as an example, then you're probably not going to try it very much, right? And you're mm -hmm. going to be, you're not going to be adaptive to situations where, you, where you've got to talk to people. It's a lot better if you have a goal and a reason to talk to people. Like if your future yeah. self is someone who can talk to people and then you can go through what, what we call deliberate practice, right? Yeah. You've heard of deliberate practice, right? I have not. So deliberate practice. So you, so um, Malcolm Gladwell talks about 10,000 hour rule. Yes. Um, you can obviously do something for 10,000 hours and not get any better at it. Um, you know, you can live a thousand days and actually stay pretty, you know, not actually learn a lot from those days. Um, the, the goal, the idea of it really comes from the idea of what's called deliberate practice, which is basically intentional purposeful learning towards a goal. Um, you have to have a future self in mind and actually use that goal to shape your process. The pro, you know, in the process, it could be becoming an Olympic athlete. It could be learning how to swim, learning how to bowl. The process is shaped by the goal. Um, but the practice is targeted towards a specific outcome towards a specific version of yourself. And, uh, that allows you to, that allows you to become the person you want you to be. Obviously that type of training is very different than just routine training where you're doing the same thing over and over. It's like, you've got to actually evaluate how you're doing and it's not easy it's but it it's purposeful learning and that's how you actually can change and grow and get good at things that you wouldn't otherwise but you would need a reason to do it you would need yeah. that future self so this, the person who can't doesn't think that they're good at speaking they it, they could easily go through the deliberate practice process of becoming a great speaker just like you you know i had to learn how to become an, a writer even though there was no evidence that i could do that five to ten years ago but you have to have a reason for doing it yeah. And, and then once you do have the evidence via a book or a blog or whatever it may be, then that evidence starts to feed into itself. Confidence. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are around this. I'll give you a little bit of a personal anecdote and just let you, let you analyze it a little bit. But over the last year, I've become a runner. Awesome. I've hated running my entire life. Okay. I've despised, you need me to pick up some heavy crap and move it. I'm your guy. You need me to go run a couple miles. Not your man. Um, but I started running last year and I mean, it was like 
go running, go run a mile. And it was miserable. But what I started doing was I started doing heart rate training through one of my friend who's a, who's an Ironman. He taught me how to do that. And what it basically did is allowed for me to run, run for a really long time at a really low heart rate. And it felt like walking forever. But what happened was I started to associate the fact that I could go run for 30 minutes and it wasn't that big of a deal, 45 minutes in an hour. And then one day about a month or two in, one of my friends said, well, you got to start seeing yourself as a runner now a little bit, don't you? And I thought, yeah, I, I kind of do actually. So fast forward to yesterday, I, I went and ran with my dog um, and all we could get in was two miles because of time constraint, just a quick, quick run. And I got done with that and I started thinking, that didn't even feel like a workout. I could keep going forever. Um, but a year ago, the thought of that would have been just so daunting. So there was this constant progression throughout this year from a mile is miserable to I'll go accidentally run eight miles. Dude, that's awesome. What's cool about that is, is that your current situation is beyond the imagination of your former self, which is really cool. Mm. Just like your future self situation and their goals and their abilities is actually beyond the imagination of you, yeah. um, which is really important. Um, but yeah, so there's, there's so many different ideas here. Uh, I have two thoughts and essentially maybe one question. Um, the two thoughts are, you know, and I'll, you know, I'll ask the question after, but basically you had to have a reason for starting to run. Maybe it was just because you wanted to test your friend's hypothesis, but you had a reason to start running. I'd be interested in what that reason was. The second thought though is, is a concept called self-signaling. Self-signaling is basically the idea that your behavior uh, signals back to the type of person that you think you are. You know, James Clear talks about his casting votes by your behaviors. Yeah. But essentially self-signaling means that because you started running, you start to identify as a runner. Um, it started to become something that you saw as, you know, if you're that, that's actually why you want to do new things. Like if you, cause it's running was inconsistent with your former identity, Correct. right? It was inconsistent with your former personality to some degree. <laughs> like, yeah. um, and, but, but now that's something that's consistent with who you are, um, because you started doing it and then you started to define yourself by your behavior. And that's kind of what we do. Uh, but I actually, my question was, why did you start doing it? So I, fun story, uh, in high school, I ran cross country simply due to the fact that I made a joke about signing up for it. My dad said, there's no way you could possibly do that. And I said, screw you, dad. I'm going to go prove you, prove you wrong. There you go. And I, and I did, and I enjoyed it. Met my best friend through it, like my best friend to this day. Um, and one of my friends, the same guy who said, you got to start seeing yourself as a runner now, I think it was last May said, Hey, why don't we do this 5k next month? And it was like the end of May and it was going to be like the third week of June. And I said, I don't really want to do it. But he said, come on, man, just sign up for it. So I signed up for it. And now I'm sitting here thinking, crap, I got to do this 5K. So I need to start prepping for this 5K because I know that 3.16 or whatever miles it is, is not going to be easy in the middle of June in in the hills of Nashville. Um, So that started it. And the amount of progress I saw in maybe those three weeks from signing up until doing it encouraged me to want to do it again. So I signed up for another one in July and then I did another one in August, actually did two in July, another one in August, one in October in, in Albuquerque. Um, and then I signed up for a half marathon and it just, it just kept snowballing from there. I enjoyed the results. Yeah, totally. Was the main reason you did it though, just because your friend told you to, or was there probably other reasons as well? I mean, obviously you could see value in running, et cetera, like that, but, um, it was the initial reason. The initial reason was just to do it with your bud. Correct. And just to prove to myself that I could still do it. 
because I'd obviously run several 5Ks. That's good. That's Um, good. Yeah. Yeah, We, in psychology, we call that forcing function, you know, so like once you signed up for the race, it was a forcing function. You felt compelled to go do it. That's actually one of the smartest ways where you can create a situation that forces you forward. Uh, And and so, yeah, it was a forcing function. You signed up for it. You did it. You built some confidence. So you decided to keep doing it. Um, My question for you is like, do you, so when you started to project those future goals, running a half marathon, did Mm -hmm. you already do that? Well, I was actually supposed to do it in June and it got, it got canceled. I've been training for it and it got canceled in Nashville, got pushed back to September because of coronavirus. Gotcha. Gotcha. But that goal shapes your process, right? Like training for a half marathon is different than training for a 5k, right? Correct. Very much. And so like that goal, that future version of you seeing yourself run across this running through the, you know, you know, doing the 13 mile run essentially being done that shape, that idea shapes what you do today or how you go running. And that's essentially deliberate practice. It's you becoming the type of person who could run a half marathon. That same principle can apply to essentially anything. You could do it to run a, a 50k or to yeah. write a book or to, you know, do a PhD, whatever it is. It's just having that future self and then using that self to shape your process and ultimately building the confidence along the way. Yeah. I mean, I did the same thing with becoming a podcaster. I'd never been a podcaster when I decided to have a podcast. Of course. <laughs> so I just said, let me go buy a mic and let me listen to a bunch of podcasts and see what, see what would work. Yeah. And so the fact that you do that can provide you with confidence that you can do other things. And that's, we call that psychological flexibility that you're not so defined by your comfort zone. Other people, they might, you know, they might um, hold to the idea that they're just not a runner and that that's just not a skill they have. And so they wouldn't even conceptualize the goal. Whereas you've now watched yourself do that. You've watched yourself do a podcast. Obviously you've got other accomplishments in your life, but like that allows you to be flexible to uncertainty. Uh, That allows you to be, allows you to deal with the emotions of growth, of figuring things out learning the technology of a podcast, learning how to have conversations, like so much learning and growth is between you and your goals. Um, And if you become flexible and confident, then you'll go through that learning process or you'll decide that you can't do it. And so you'll retreat to your comfort zone. It's interesting. It's almost like the economic concept of elasticity within the market. Um, Having the ability to, like you said, have that um, level where you can take that uncertainty Elasticity Um, would be huge. It'd be very important for not being so rigid in your personality, not being so defined by former experiences. Elasticity would be very key. Well, well, let me ask you this. So there's, there's basically several sections within the book and I want to go through a couple of them and I'll, we can just go through the titles and you can give high points on it. But one of section one is the myth of personality. So why specifically the myth of personality? What do you mean by that? Kind of what you said before that that we have this notion that it's innate and non-flexible. So it's really the myths of personality and the kind of common ones are that, that it is innate, it's non-flexible, it's non-changeable, that it is what it is. And as a result, it must be something that you discover. Um, So that's why personality tests are quite popular is because they claim to kind of reveal to you who you truly are. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's just, you know, like once you've discovered your true self, then you can build your life around your personality. You know, that's kind of like, go get the job that fits who you you innately are and you know that's kind of those are kind of the myths they're very i I break down every single one and how they're non-scientific another one is obviously that personality is from your past um, which it does not have to be um and so i just kind of break down the science of how all of these things are incorrect and explain that no this is not true (laughs) yeah well and it's interesting because i what you said earlier is i think people conflate personality and identity they make it one and the same yes and identity to me, as you're describing, it seems like it would be a lot harder to let go of. 
It can be. Yeah, it can be. Identity is something we defend, but also identity, it, it can be harder to let go of, but it's also once you understand how to change, as you described, you can, it's, it's a lot easier to change immediately. Hmm. Um, like you can start to say, start to define the identity of your future self as someone who can run marathons. That may not be you today. It's actually good for, for decision-making to, to view your future self as a different person than you. Just like you're not the same person in the past, your future self is not the same person you are today. Your future self is someone who can run marathons. Um, you know, your future self may be a, a millionaire, who knows? Like, but they would see the world differently and they would make different decisions. And so from a decision-making standpoint, it's actually better to view them as a different person and then think what would their preferences be? Um, so identity is, although easy to attach to, uh, it's actually the place you wanna start when, it, when you go to the change process. And actually, once you kind of understand that past, present, and future selves are three different people, what you then can do is you can become a lot more flexible with your identity. Uh, I don't know if you know who Paul Graham is. Mm -mm. He's like a really famous venture capitalist, but he's got a really good, like little short essay called Keep Your Identity Small. But mm -hmm. it really fits with the idea of psychological flexibility. And it really just fits with the idea that you should actually hold loosely your current identity. Your current identity, as weird as this sounds, doesn't really matter that much. Um, what matters more is actually your future self, the person you want to be. Um, the person you are today is very temporary. Like, and as a result, you wouldn't want to overly define your current self. It's actually a lot better to define your future self and to be on the intentional path towards becoming that person. Then you can be more flexible. Then you have more options. If you overly define your current self, then yeah, it can become very rigid. You can seek to defend it, seek to confirm it. Um, that's so interesting. You definitely don't want to do that. Like that's the from a growth perspective, don't overly define your current self, you know? Well, and it's, it's one of the best examples in society is a political identity. You know, if, if you identify as a, as a Democrat yep. or you yep. identify as a Republican, it, it almost doesn't matter at all what the other side is saying, whether it's logical, like you will fight tooth and nail to defend the worldview that you already believe in. That's actually what Paul Graham talks about. He talks about when you when you overly have some aspect of your identity you seek to defend it you can't he says labels make you stupid or make you dumb um and that i mean there's a lot of research on you know mindfulness as an example that when you overly assume a label like if you think you're depressed or an introvert or anything then you become mindless to all the times the label's not true um you see labels create tunnel vision what we call selective attention so it's like as an example when you buy a car you start to see the car everywhere yep. right Yep. So that's how labels work is you see the world through your label. You don't notice the 50 other cars on the road because they're not relevant and your behavior is the same way. You only see what's relevant. You don't see all the times when you're actually living incongruently to your persona, um, which is often because we're different from context to context. You're not always one way in some mm -hmm. situations and around some people you're going to be one way and around, you know, in some roles and, and you know, you're not always going to be the same in every role. So yeah, you, Political identity is a great one and you can become a lot more flexible and open to learning and seeing things if you're not so rigid in how you define your current self. Well, another one, you know, working in the finance world, I heard a quote, uh, rules of thumb are for the intellectually lazy. Um, in the finance world in particular. That makes a lot of sense. You, you have a lot of this is what you're supposed to do. It's absolutely. It can ridiculous. stop you from being mindful to context, right? Correct. Every, especially when you're dealing with personal finances and you're dealing with, um, you know, personal goals and objectives. Um, everybody's story is so unique, and everybody's objective is so unique. The the road cannot be the same to everybody. It's impossible. Now, I mean, uh, the fact that you're in, you know have an economic background and understand context, 
one of the biggest arguments of this book is that context matters more than content and context shapes the meaning of content. Um, so like I sent an email to my email list probably like a month ago and I used the word viral because mm-hmm. I was talking about an article going viral and I had a handful of people say, please don't use that word right now, given COVID-19. Mm. You know, I said, all right, that's cool. If I had used that word two or three months ago in an email, it wouldn't have mattered, right? Wouldn't right. have triggered anything because context shapes the meaning of content. Um, and every context is different. And so if you're only focused on your rule of thumb or your, your one identity or your narrow label, then you, you're, first off, it's just inaccurate because in different contexts, you're going to show up differently, but also, yeah, it just, it limits you from seeing the reality. I, I use the example of, so I, I speak multiple languages and one of the things that I That's always awesome, do, dude. it's one of the, well, it's, it's probably one of the, the, the best things my parents gave me just, and Excellent. it's one of the things I want to share with, with my children. Um, but so I speak Serbo Croatian, which is my native tongue language, um, German, and then obviously English. And one of the things I talked about this a couple of weeks ago on a podcast, one of the things that I do whenever there's a major news story going on, I'll read a bunch of points of view in English from the United States. Then I'll read a bunch of points of view in English from outside the United States. Then I'll read a bunch of points of view in German. Then I'll read a bunch of points of view in Serbian and Croatian. They're quite different points of view, right? It's all the same story, yet everything's completely different. This is why it's important to kind of view the past as a fiction is because you just have one story. Correct. And it's, it's, it's also very clear to, you know, from a media standpoint, you can go down further. The agendas, right? You're, you're being manipulated 24 seven because they're making money off of the, the, you, there's a product that is being exchanged here and the product is the information. Okay. And then there's an agenda. It's your attention, right? (laughs) Yeah. So, so it's, it's super interesting to think about it from that standpoint. Um, you know, so the second part was the truth of your personality. We've already covered that. Transform your trauma. We kind of, we kind of covered that in, in the sense of the example you gave of you and your upbringing and your dad. You could choose to see him as a villain. You could choose to see him as a hero. Well, and, um, and a lot of that's getting more information. Like when I was an 11-year-old kid, I didn't. So in, in, with, with emotions, you have an initial reaction. Mm-hmm. If someone cuts you off on the road you might get scared. You know, it's not the yeah. initial reaction that matters. It's what you do next, which is called, you know, emotional regulation. Um, there's actually, there's actually some really good quotes that uh, I'd love to share with you. Go for it. If you're up for it. I think this is helpful for people because um, I think people often, they, they hold on to things longer than they need to. Um, let me, let me do this. Cause I, so this is man search for meaning is something I just read because of COVID-19. I love that book. I read it in like three hours good. in January. Yeah, it's, awesome. it's, it's freaking good stuff. I mean, I've read it many times. I actually read it twice in April just because, but here's what he says. He says, emotion, which is suffering, ceases to be suffering as soon as we form a clear and precise picture of it. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do one more. Um, I'll do one more quote. So for, first off, I'll read Frankel's one more time. Emotion, which is suffering, ceases to be suffering as soon as we form a clear and precise picture of it. So when it comes to f- trauma, I mean, one thing you can do, and there's a lot of research on this, is obviously journal about it. Journaling about your former experiences so that you give them a form so that you can then do something about it. Obviously, talking to people um, about what you're going through also allows you to get it out of your head. This is actually one of the reasons why I would, actually talk, I would recommend journaling as a morning process is because it actually it just allows you to get your emotions out of you so that you're not foggy and hazy and so that you're clear in general. Interesting. Um, so first thing in the morning, start journaling. Oh, 
Dude, if you journaled for five to 10 minutes a day, just about what was going through your head and also about your goals, the amount of clarity that you get is absolutely amazing. And obviously, if you're writing about your future self and about what you're trying to accomplish, then you can make decisions about how to be intentional today. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, but just the pr- process of writing about what you're experiencing gives it a clear and precise picture, which then gets it out of you and you then, it's, it ceases to be needless suffering. Um, then Mr. Rogers, you know, the famous Mr. Rogers uh, had this to say, and it's really good. He says, anything that is human is mentionable and anything that is mentionable can be more manageable. When we talk about our feelings, they become less overwhelming, less upsetting and less scary the people we trust with that important talk can help us know that we're not alone. Um, and there's a lot of good stuff as it relates to trauma on this subject. Um, mm. You know, like your trauma is a meaning that you've attached. I actually tell a story of a lady and trauma, by the way, is not just huge events. I mean, trauma could be that someone told you you're not good at drawing and you took it seriously. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's, it's a meaning that you have attached because of an emotional response that you had. And, and then you chose not to reframe the response or the meaning. So like I tell the story of a, a relative of mine, she's a, actually like, um, like a relative of my wife, but she was brilliant. She went to like Stanford, went to Cornell, like, you know, she was really smart. She's in her eighties now, but like she was, she's a brilliant writer and she always, she's in her eighties now, but she always wanted to write and illustrate children's books. So like rewind 40 years ago, like when she was in her like maybe late thirties, early, I mean, late thirties, early forties, she went to a private art lesson. And during that private art lesson, she was living in New York city. Um, there were probably five or six other people taking the private art lesson. And I think it was like in the evening, but they were doing one of the exercises and the teacher came and took her easel pad and started crossing her thing out and, um, correcting her. And while he was correcting her, she was feeling very embarrassed, embarrassed that she was like getting corrected in public. And also like he didn't correct anyone else like that. And so while that was going on and it was emotional for her, she formed a narrative. We call it a cognitive commitment, but the narrative was, I must not be very good at this. And so as a result, she didn't go back uh, and she didn't ever pursue the goal. Uh, you know, those type of experiences, if not resolved, and if you've overly attached meaning to it, you become emotionally rigid. You become unwilling to deal with feedback, unwilling to go through the learning process. And so she then just overly defined herself as I'm not good at drawing. So even 40 years forward, I met her at a family reunion and I was hearing this story and was completely blown away. I was like, Oh my goodness. So you, and she's, and I'm like, well, do you still want to draw kids books? And she's like, it would be amazing, but I'm not good at drawing. Wow. So she still holds on to the same meaning that she created in the initial response. There was no self, there was no reframe. She didn't rechange the meaning, but what's important about this is think about it. She has no experience. Well, yeah, but she also has no clue what the intentions of the teacher were. Yeah. She created the narrative. She created the narrative. And so part of getting context is what if she would have asked the teacher, what if she would have told the teacher, like, why did you correct my work? He could have totally maybe given her a response or maybe she could have just said, who cares what that teacher did. Right. But Mm -hmm. like she chose to be defined by their initial response and the commitment that came with it. And she still believes that to this day. And so that's why it was a trauma is because she's still defined by the past. That's so interesting Uh, that, so this actually plays perfectly since we were on a quote train, I got a quote from uh, my Dostoevsky. There's no subject soul that's something you cannot be said about it. And that's, that made me think about it. You know, that's like the past, right? Correct. And, Man, that is, that is fascinating. How many times have we filled in a story 
Uh, I mean, even just in, in regular BS gossip happening just in social interactions between humans, like, oh, so-and-so did this. Well, did they really do that? Well, no, but you know what they meant to do. It's like, no, I don't. I have no <laughs> idea what they meant to do. It's like, why are you filling in the blanks? Yeah, no, it's crazy. And I think once you're, once you're a person who's committed to a future, you have to uncommit to your current view of the past. Um, so like I tell stories of people, like the, the conclusion of the book, read the conclusion if you read nothing else. You know, I know you got the PDF, but um, mm-hmm. there's a woman who, you know, she fell asleep and her four-year-old son went outside and fell into an irrigation canal and died, right? And wow. like, you know, that was traumatic. She pretty much almost became suicidal. Yeah. Um, and she was, she was getting actually ready to kill herself one night because it actually turned out that at the exact same time, and she didn't learn this until a decade later, but her husband was actually having an affair on her at the time. And, well, um, right. and because he was having an affair and he was kind of like self-guilted, he actually condemned her like crazy. He said, how dare you? You killed our son. Like he just made her feel like the dirt, the mm-hmm. dust. Um, and so she was, you know, on the brink of killing herself. And she actually got a letter. And the letter because she got a lot of condolence letters because she was on the news. She got a letter uh, from a lady and the lady said, and I think her name was Teresa, if I remember correctly, but she never ended up getting back in touch with this lady. But the lady said, look, I want you to understand something. I know that you're probably going through hell right now. Um, She said, a few years ago, I was playing outside with my six, this was in a letter. A few years ago, I was playing outside with my six-year-old daughter. I went inside to answer the phone and I came back outside and she'd been hit by a car and died. And so she was like, and so like she said, I just want you to know that like, whatever you're going through, I know it's difficult, but at some point or another, you got to realize that you have to make the choice to be happy. And the only way to do that is to move back forward with your life and to choose a future and things like that. that's actually what Frankel said over and over is that you have to have a future that gives your life meaning. Um, and so what she ended up doing rather than taking pain pills and killing herself, and she was actually going to write a letter to her son because she had another son. This, so she, her four-year-old son died, but she had a two-year-old son. And she was going to write him a letter just apologizing and saying, basically, mom had to go away because she figured she was being worse off than being around. Um, but then after reading that letter, she decided to send a different letter, write a different letter to her two-year-old son, which she gave to him a decade later. And she said, I, I'm so sorry that your brother died. I am fully committed to being the absolute best mom I can be for you. Um, and then she gave him that letter 10 years later. But what's interesting is, how she, and I've talked to her, this lady's amazing, I interviewed her for the book, how she views the death of her son now is, although obviously it's a tragedy, you know, to some degree she's grateful it happened um, from one frame because she, the amount of people that she helps, I mean, it gives her life so much purpose. The amount of people she helps through similar situations because she went through that is unbelievable. I mean, she helps so many people through grief, through challenge. None of that would have been possible if it wouldn't have occurred. And so like, there's a concept and you kind of have to come to the conclusion for yourself. Either the event happened to you or it happened for you. Mm, And if you choose to say that it happened for you, then you can use it to have a lot of purpose and do a lot of good with it. If it happened to you, then you're still defined by it and you're still emotionally caught up. Yeah. I've been listening to a podcast called the happiness lab and uh, they talk about that very specific topic uh, of either, either happened to you or for you. The past should be viewed as it all happened for you. If you Mm. can see that even today, you know, if something falls apart, technology breaks this technology, you know, like you have two choices. It either happened to you or for you. If it happened for you, you can use it. If it happened to you, you're being used by it. Mm. I love that. I love that. Well, everybody still Dr. Benjamin Hardy. Um, 
So we're coming up on time, which makes me kind of sad because this conversation has been awesome, but personality isn't permanent coming out in June. Um, I got to end the podcast the way I always end the podcast though, is if you could go back to 18 year old, you all wide eyed and bushy tailed ready for the world, knowing all that you know about yourself and knowing all that you know now, what is one piece of advice you would give yourself at 18? Yeah. So 18 year old version of me barely graduated high school and was playing world of Warcraft 15 hours a day. Mm, um, all yeah. kinds of, all kinds of progress in life. Yeah. 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 I was pretty traumatized uh, by the situation I was in. I would say, um, first off, everything's okay. You're going to be okay. And, um, you know, that your, your future is going to be great. Like you, you've got, you've got a great, great stuff to look forward to. I mean, I think when you're going through challenges, you can really question that, you know, that's a big Mm -hmm. part of trauma, obviously, is you lose hope. And so I, I think I would just instill hope that you've got a great life, a great future. And I would probably just challenge him to immediately start moving in the direction you need to go. Stop procrastinating the decisions you already know you should be making. Um, Cause I already kind of, I, I essentially just pushed off things that I knew I needed to do for a year or two or three and kind of just was living in the, the numbness of yeah. distracting myself. And I would just say, just, get, get on with it. And first off, like, there's nothing wrong with you. There's not absolutely nothing wrong with mm-hmm. you. You've got a great future ahead of you and you're going to be okay. And you know, you can move forward now. That is awesome. I love that. I love you got to have empathy towards your former self. There's no yeah. reason to judge your former self at all. They were in a different situation, right? They, they had yeah. different resources and abilities. 15 hours a day of world of Warcraft though, man, that's intense. Dude, I was, I was in some serious distraction mode because I didn't really have much, uh, much future ahead of me. I didn't see it. And so when you don't have a future per Frankel, yeah. the present becomes pretty meaningless. Yeah. Wow. Well, Ben, this was a, a true pleasure. I love this. This was fun. This was way cool, dude. Uh, I'd love gl- talking to you as well, man. I'm, I'm glad we got to connect. Let the folks know how they can get a hold of you. Uh, obviously, you know, we'll put all the information in the show notes. Uh, look out for the book. We'll, we'll have the Amazon link for the pre-orders, et cetera, but any previous writings you've had, website, social media, et cetera, let the people know. Yeah, I would just say benjaminhardy.com is my website. And um, yeah, get personalities and permanent. I think you'll see a lot of things that you maybe didn't see before in books similar to this. Um, I I have a lot of free giveaways that we do for anyone who buys the book. Uh, There's about 150 journal prompts in the book to help you reframe former experiences, design your future self, take action in that direction. Um, so there's a course that walks you through all of this. You can get immediate access to by buying the book. Um, there's other online courses that we give away for free to at benjaminhardy.com that you can scope out. Awesome. Awesome. Well, everybody, as always, thanks for, thanks for coming along for the ride. Millennial-manhood.com, uh, info at mmcip.co. If you got people you want us to interview or you have uh, constructive criticism, keyword constructive, don't just complain. You got to offer a solution. That's the key. And outside of that, we'll talk to you guys soon. 